Romans 1, 18 through 20, and 2, 14 through 15. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The word of the Lord. Well, in the weeks leading up to Easter, we are uh, looking at the big questions, the big obstacles and objections that people have to faith in God, uh, especially to faith in Jesus or Christianity. Uh, And this week, we're looking at the question or the obstacle of God's existence. I'm guessing most of you uh, probably in this room believe in God already. Some of you may not. Others of you may be exploring the question. But here's why this is so important for all of us. I've been a Christian now for about 20 years and some change, and I've never been one of those people that just struggles with doubt. Uh, I've never really agonized over whether or not this whole thing is true, but every once in a while, I wonder. I, I think every thinking person wonders once in a while. I mean, you build your life on something, you have certain beliefs, certain core convictions, and we wonder. So I do, I wonder. I, I, sometimes I think to myself, what if this is all a bunch of hooey? What if I've given my life to something that's not real? What if, um, what if I've been taken for a fool for these last 20 years? Jenny and I were watching some shows on Scientology recently, Um, If there are any Scientologists here or listening online, I'm not trying to be purposefully offensive, but we were listening to this show, and and when we began to learn more about what Scientologists really believe, that every human being has lived hundreds, even thousands of lives in some other worlds before arriving here on Earth, we said to each other, "How, how does anybody believe in something that's so crazy? And then we turned to each other and we said, wait a minute, there are lots of people in the world that would look at what we believe and think it's crazy too. So here's the question, how do we know we're not crazy? <laughs> I don't know how you do it, but here's, here's one of the things I do. I go back to the basics, the basic questions, the basic worldview questions. One of the big things I just start running through to the decision tree in my life. One of the big things I always go back to is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am as sure of that as I am of just about anything else in this world. And if you want to know why, come back on Easter. But even more basic than that, I go back to basic worldview questions. Is there a God or not? Does God exist or does he not exist? If he does exist, then okay, that comes along with certain intellectual problems. That's further down the decision tree and we got to wrestle with those things. But if God does not exist, then man, I've got even bigger problems. 
And I'm not just talking about intellectual problems. Anytime we get overly anxious, and not just normally anxious, but overly anxious or overly angry or overly afraid, anytime we get depressed or ashamed or proud or bitter or vindictive or vengeful, anytime we feel trapped in envy or addiction or self-destructive behavior, it's because at that moment, the reality of who God is is not real to us. Every single one of us builds our lives on something, which means that every single one of us worships something. You may not think that you worship anything, but if you've ever experienced any of those things I just mentioned, it's because you do worship something and it's not God. And at that moment, whatever it is you're worshiping is either failing you or it's punishing you. That means that there is no more important thing for us to know than the existence of God. We need to know that God is and we need to know who God is. So here's the question. How do we know that God exists? Um, we're going to take a look at this incredibly important question by looking at two excerpts that were just read for us from, past, uh, from Romans chapters 1 and 2. These passages give us some of the most powerful evidence for the existence of God that you can possibly find. Uh, how can we know that God exists? Let's look at three things. We're going to talk about knowing God from creation, knowing God from morality, and lastly, what do we do with this knowledge? Okay? Knowing God from creation, knowing God from morality, and lastly, what do we do with this knowledge? Okay? First, knowing God from creation. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about proving that God exists. Nobody can prove that either way. But you know how science works. It says, hey, let's look at the evidence, and then let's come up with um, some explanations. What, what makes best sense of the evidence, all right? So let's do that. In fact, you notice that Paul does the very same thing in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. He says, what can be known about God is plain to them, that's people, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So notice Paul says, there are things about God that are invisible, God is not the kind of being that you can test scientifically. You're not going to point your telescope in the sky and observe God. Uh, Paul says there are things about God that are invisible, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. You can't see those things. But, Paul says, you can see the things that God has made. And when you look at those things, Paul says that, that God is clearly perceived. That phrase, clearly perceived, means to look down on something, to observe something, and then to study it or to, to give very careful consideration to it. In other words, Paul is saying there is evidence. There are clues. And if you look at these clues, if you consider them carefully, then you can, in fact, know something about God. So, what are some of the arguments for the existence of God? There are literally dozens of them, and they're all wonderful and excellent arguments, but let me focus on just two in this time together. Uh, they're the two that Paul mentions in these passages uh, that we just read. Interestingly enough, these two arguments are the arguments that 
are most compelling and most discussed today among contemporary philosophers and scientists when it comes to the existence of God. So the first argument is the argument from creation, knowing God from creation. In verse 20, Paul says, when you look at the creation of the world, when you look at the things that have been made, you can clearly perceive God. So for instance, there's the Big Bang. In 1919, Edwin Hubble pointed his telescope in the sky and he made this discovery that the universe is expanding. Now everybody accepts that as knowledge nowadays. We don't have any doubt about that. That that there was a massive explosion of energy from an infinitesimally small point. Before that, there was nothing. And as a result of that, everything came into existence. It's called the Big Bang. Everybody knows that nowadays, but when Edwin Hubble first made his discovery and published his findings, he was scoffed at by the scientific community because they did not like the implications of his discovery because the question immediately arises, okay, how is there something out of nothing? The evidence of the Big Bang unmistakably suggests a cause that is outside of nature or supernatural. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the God of the Bible. It does mean a God that would be extremely powerful, okay? So that's the Big Bang. But let me give you another argument from creation that's even more powerful, more popular, and and probably a little bit more fun, too. That's called the fine-tuning argument. The fine-tuning argument goes like this. When scientists look at the universe, uh, there are certain regularities. They're called constants. Uh, These are things that need to be in place in order for life to exist in this universe. So these are things like the speed of light or the gravitational constant or various constants of the strong and weak nuclear forces. There are 15 of these constants, and you could think of them like little dials. And each one of these little dials needs to be tuned to just the right position in order for life to be possible in this universe. And if any one of these dials was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, then there would be no galaxy, no stars, no planets, no people. In other words, the universe is fine-tuned for the existence of life. In fact, it's so finely tuned that many people have noticed that it looks like whomever created the universe set out a welcome mat for us and said, hey, come on in, people. I made this place just for you. This is an incredibly strong argument. The odds of a universe like this coming to existence are so astronomical as to be practically impossible. But there are objections to this argument. The most common objection that comes up basically says that, okay, the odds of one universe like this coming into existence is practically impossible. But what if there are trillions of universes and we just happen to be living in the right one? By the way, there's not a shred of evidence for the existence of even one other universe, much less trillions of universes, but that's the hypothesis. So there's the evidence. Which, which explanation do you find most reasonable? That there's one God who created this universe that is practically impossible? Or that there are millions of other universes for which there is zero evidence and we just happen to be living in the right one? Of course, logically, rationally, that's possible. But which, which is most reasonable? Alvin Plantiga is one of the most respected philosophers in the world, and he says, consider it like this. Imagine you're in the Wild West, 
maybe someplace like Dodge City, and you're playing poker, and, and every time you deal the cards, you get four aces and a wild card. And then after about five or six or ten times that happening, um, what are you going to say when, when your poker buddies pull out their guns and, uh, and their fingers start getting a little perky on the triggers there? What are you going to say to them? Plantinga says, here's what you could possibly say, and I think it, it is helpful if you imagine Larry the Cable Guy saying this. You know Mater from Cars? You're going to say something like, well, sure, Tex. I know it's a little mite suspicious that every time I deal, I get four aces and a wild card, but have you considered the, uh, the following? Suppose we live, suppose there's an infinite succession of universes, and we just happen to be in the universe where every time I deal the cards, I get four aces and a wild card without cheating. So put away your shooting irons, boys. <laughs> As an explanation, is that logical? Is it, is it, is it rationally possible? Yes. Is it reasonable? I think you're going to have a hard time convincing your poker buddies. So listen, there are a couple of arguments from creation, the Big Bang, the fine-tuning argument. They're strong arguments. They're, they're powerful arguments. And, and some people are compelled by them, but they're not convincing to everybody because these are big arguments. They're abstract. Let's get a little bit more personal. We've just talked about knowing God from creation. Let's talk about knowing God from morality. This is probably the single most powerful and compelling argument for the existence of God that there is. And you see it actually in verses 14 and 15 of our passage. Paul says that when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So Paul is saying here that when you look at Gentiles, these would be non-Jews, non-religious people who don't have access to God's moral revelation. They don't have the Ten Commandments. They don't believe in all that stuff. He says that when you see them acting morally, and you do, it shows that God's moral law is written on their hearts, whether they believe in God or not. The presence of moral knowledge inside every single human being is one of the most powerful arguments for the existence of God there is. So, for instance, Francis Collins is one of the most respected genetic scientists who's ever lived. I mean, he, he mapped out the human genome. He, he is widely respected in the world of science. He's also a committed Christian. He gave an interview in, of all places, Salon Magazine a number of years ago. And during the course of the interview, they were talking about the existence of God. And Francis Collins brings out these arguments from creation. He talks about the Big Bang. He talks about the fine-tuning argument. But then he turns around and he says, at the end of the day, you want to know what really got me? It wasn't that stuff. It was something else. He talks about how when he was a graduate student, he was a committed atheist. He believed that science uh, had the ability to explain everything we encounter in the universe. But then he went to medical school, and he was seeing patients that were suffering terribly. And one of his patients began talking to him about how her faith really helped her cope with the things that she was going through. And then she turned around and she asked him, she said, well, what about you? What do you believe? And he said, I stuttered and stammered and said, well, I don't think I believe in anything. But it suddenly seemed like a very thin answer, and that was unsettling. I was a scientist who was supposed to draw conclusions from the evidence, and I realized that I'd never really looked at the evidence for and against the possibility of God. 
So he starts exploring. He started investigating. And you want to know what really got him? He read a little book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. And here's what he says. Within the first three pages, I realized that my arguments against faith were those of a schoolboy. As I read his arguments about the moral law, the knowledge of right and wrong, which makes no sense from the perspective of basic evolution and biology, but makes great sense as a signpost to God, I began to realize the truth of what he was saying. Ultimately, I realized I couldn't go back to where I was. I could never again say atheism is the only logical choice for a scientifically trained person. Now, what did he discover in those first few pages? It takes the form of a question. The question is, is there such a thing as real right and wrong? Most people within our culture nowadays would respond to that question by saying, well, right and wrong is something that everyone has to decide for themselves. There's no such thing as an objective, absolutely binding moral reality. But if you believe that, the argument goes, then you can never say that torturing babies for fun is wrong. You can never say that when the Nazis killed millions of Jews, that what they did was wrong. Now, most people, when pressed, will admit, okay, you put it like that, maybe there are some things that are absolutely right and wrong, which means we have a different question now. The real question becomes, where does this moral knowledge come from? There are different answers to that question, different options that people put out. Some people say that morality is the product of evolution. Uh, it's sometimes called the herd instinct. Uh, so, in other words, things like altruism and sacrificial and unselfish behavior is really just um, the product of evolution in human beings because it helped our herd or our tribe to survive. Now, there's some problems with that argument. One of them is that it doesn't explain why, um, why somebody would sacrifice for something or someone outside of their herd or their tribe. Also, scientists are pretty unanimous that natural selection only works on individuals, not populations or species. But let's set aside those objections for just a moment. Let's say that morality really is the product of evolution. What that means is that we have real moral feelings inside of us. What it does not mean is that there is real, true, objective moral facts outside of us. And yet that's the way we experience them. So again, C.S. Lewis in that little book is brilliant with this. He says, suppose you hear a cry for help from someone in danger. You will probably feel two desires. One, a desire to help due to your herd instinct. See, he's putting things in evolutionary terms here. The other, a desire to, to keep out of danger due to your instinct for self-preservation. But you will find, in addition to these two impulses, a third thing which tells you that you ought to follow the impulse to help and, and to suppress the impulse to run away. Now, this thing that judges between those two instincts cannot itself be either of them. You might as well say that the sheet of music which tells you to play one note on the piano and not another is itself one of the notes on the keyboard. The moral law tells us the tune we have to play. Our instincts are merely the keys. You see why this is such a great book. If morality really is the product of evolution, then we can have moral feelings. We can have moral preferences. We can even have real strong moral convictions, but we cannot have moral facts. There is no way objectively that we can say torturing babies for fun is wrong, not in the way we mean it. 
Now, other people answer the problem of morality by saying, well, morality doesn't come from evolution. It comes from social construction. Um, we, we construct morality. Uh, different cultures have come up with different constructions, and that helps our societies. It helps our cultures to flourish and to survive. But you have the same problem with that view that you have with the evolutionary view. Because socially constructed morals are still not moral facts. It's utilitarianism. It's pragmatism. It works for us. We can say to each other, hey, we've got these socially constructed values that work for us. It helps our culture to survive. Great. But what if some other culture constructs a morality that's different from ours? We have no way to say to that other culture that what you're doing is wrong. If morality is simply a social construction, then we have no objective, binding, absolute basis by which to say to the Nazis, what you did was wrong. At the end of the day, every single one of us experiences the weight of moral reality pressing down upon us. We know that it's more than a preference. We know that it's more than pragmatics. In fact, we experience it as an obligation, a real moral obligation. Something that says to each and every one of us, here's this moral action, this good thing. You must do it. Whether or not you prefer it, whether or not it works for you. In fact, it may not work out very well for you at all, but you must do it anyway. We experience morality as an obligation. Now, if there's no God, then that experience is an illusion. And if that's the truth, then okay, but let's be honest about it. Uh, the great German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche was constantly talking about this. He was always saying, if there is no God, then there's no such thing as real right and wrong. There's no such thing as moral reality. In fact, he was constantly criticizing his fellow secular, atheist, um, liberal friends because they were always trying to hold on to all these liberal values, humanistic values, things like freedom and democracy and human rights and caring for the weak and the poor, all these great, wonderful liberal values that we have. He was constantly saying to them, look, all of your liberal moral values are nothing more than, than the holdover from a bourgeois Christian morality. Grow up, put on your big boy pants and get rid of it. Frederick Nietzsche was the only atheist in all of his atheist friends who had the intellectual honesty to admit that if there is no God, morality is an illusion. And if that's the case, then here's the real question. If we experience morality as an obligation, not a preference, not a matter of pragmatics or utilitarianism, if we experience morality as a real binding obligation, then who are we obligated to? because obligation exists only between persons. You're not obligated to obey the law of gravity. You can step off a cliff and kill yourself if you want. And we can disobey the law of morality, but we know when we do that we were obligated to obey that thing. Obligation exists only between people. That means that if you want to hold on to things like human rights, if you want to hold on to things like justice and freedom and democracy, if you want to hold on to things like like our society's obligation to create a world in which children can go to school without being gunned down. If you want to hold on to those things, the only way you can do it is if you're willing to accept a world that was created by not just a powerful God, but a good God. And that means a personal God. And that leads to our last point. We've talked about knowing God from creation. We've talked about knowing God from morality. But lastly, what do we do with this knowledge? What do we do with it? 
Because here's one of the most unnerving things Paul says. In verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. You know what he's saying? He goes on to talk about how we can know God from creation. He goes on to talk about how we can know God from morality. He's saying, if you see these things, then you're seeing God. But if we see these things and then deny that God exists, Paul is saying, we're suppressing the truth. We're suppressing the knowledge of God inside of ourselves. Now, that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. I talk to a lot of people who will say things like, look, I don't need God to be good. And you know what? We just saw that that's true. Paul says in verses 14 and 15 that you can look at non-religious people, people who do not believe in God, and you can see them acting morally. But we need to make a careful distinction here. When people say, I don't need God to be good, that's true if by that they mean that they don't need to believe in God or acknowledge God in order to do good actions. That's true. The Bible says that's true. But Paul is also very careful to say that all true moral knowledge comes from God. In fact, we just spent a lot of time showing that unless there is a God who is powerful and personal and good, then we have no basis for objective, binding moral obligations. Evolution can't give it to us. Social construction can't give it to us. Where else is it going to come from? Paul says, if you don't believe in God, then... Or, or acknowledge God, his moral law is still written on your hearts. It's kind of like when God created people, he, he installed a moral homing beacon on every single one of our hard drives. We all have this moral homing beacon inside of us, which means that deep down, we all really do know that God exists. Listen to me. You can know good without believing in God. You don't need to believe in God in order to know good. You do need for there to be a God in order for there to be a good to be known. Because if there's such a thing as real good, then there's such a thing as a real God, which means that if you know good, you do know God. Paul says we suppress that. We suppress the truth about God. It's kind of like when I was a kid, we had a neighbor with a swimming pool. And one of my favorite things to do is to take one of those inflatable beach balls and try to hold it underneath the water. I was trying to suppress it. And it's fun. It was a game because it's really hard to do. You have to work really hard to keep that thing from popping up out of the water. Paul says that's what we do with God. It's not just that we are suppressing the knowledge of God's existence. It's not just that we're suppressing the knowledge of God's power. It's that we're suppressing the knowledge of God's goodness because we're suppressing our innate knowledge that there is a goodness pressing down upon us and we don't live up to it. What do you do with that? If you know that there are real moral obligations pressing down on you, and you do, and if you also know that that you don't live up to those moral obligations and you don't, then you have to press down on those things in order not to go crazy. So what do we do with that knowledge? Some of us, what are the options? Some of us deny that God exists, but then you end up with a world that doesn't make any sense. There's no reason for us to be here. The odds are that we shouldn't even be here. There's certainly no reason that we should treat one another with love and respect and dignity. Others of us opt for the, the conservative God, 
the God of conservative religion. That's a God who's all power but no love. That's a God who, who makes demands that we live up to his moral law. So what we do is we get really religious, we get really devout, we work really hard to obey all the rules and, and try really hard to become holy, righteous, moral, good people. And all that does is it makes us dismissive and superior to people um, when we succeed. It also makes us depressed and crushed and anxious when we fail. Others of us say, well, okay, I'm rejecting the God of conservative religion. I'm going to believe in, in a God who, of love, a God who, who just loves everybody. He accepts everybody, and he never, ever judges anyone. The, the conservative God is all power but no love. The liberal God is all love but no power. Because that's a God who's never going to do anything about the wrongs in this world. He's never going to bring justice to this world. He's never going to set things right. Ironically, if you have a God like that, it means you end up caring more about justice than that God. And that doesn't make any more sense. Are there any other options? It's an I God, conservative God, liberal God. What are the other options? There's only one. It's the gospel. Conservative religion gives you a God who's all power but no love. That's oppressive. Liberal religion gives you a God who's all love but no power. That's anemic. Only the gospel gives you a God who's all power and all love. Because on the cross of Jesus Christ, the wrath and power of God was revealed onto Jesus Christ in order that the love and the goodness of God could be revealed to and upon and within us. Because Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. We'll talk about that later in the series too. He is God. He is the revelation of God's power and God's goodness in this world. Which means that all of his life, Jesus was living in a constant knowledge of God's power and constant obedience to God's goodness. You and I are caught in the gears between those two things. But on the cross, Jesus Christ was crushed between those two things in order that you and I could be freed, not just to, to worship God for his power, but to enjoy and delight in God's love to us. In the book, The Life of Pi, um, the character Pi, who's Hindu, meets a Catholic priest named Father Martin, and they start talking, and, and Father Martin starts telling Pi about Jesus and his death on the cross. And it's, it's, it's really confusing to Pi. It blows his mind. It boggles him. But it's the key to everything. Listen to what, what he says. He says that a god should put up with adversity, I could understand. The gods of Hinduism face their share of thieves and bullies, kidnappers, and usurpers. What is the Ramayana but the account of one long bad day for the Rama? Adversity, yes. Reversals of fortune, yes. Treachery, yes. But humiliation, Death? I couldn't imagine Lord Krishna consenting to be stripped naked, whipped, mocked, dragged through the streets, and to top it off, crucified at the hands of mere humans to boot. It was wrong of this Christian God to let his avatar die. That is tantamount to letting a part of himself die. For if the son is to die, it cannot be fake. If God on the cross is God shamming a human tragedy, it turns the passion of Christ into the farce of Christ. The death of the son must be real, Father Martin assured me that it was. But once a dead God, always a dead God, even resurrected, the son must have the taste of death forever in his mouth. The Trinity must be tainted by it. There must be a certain stench at the right hand of God the Father. The horror must be real. Why would God wish that upon himself? 
Why not leave death to the mortals? Why make dirty what is beautiful? Why spoil what is perfect? Love. That was Father Martin's answer. Friends, if you're alone in a room, you pretty much do whatever you want. You behave however you want. But if somebody walks into the room, you're going to start acting differently, right? Because their presence in the room changes things. If God made the world, he made the room. If the gospel is true, God entered the room. He's in the world, and that changes everything. Has it changed you? It can. It will. Let's pray.